I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mark McBride. And this is a podcast about that time we made up two whole new styles of yo-yo play. And at the time, nobody cared. And now, a few people care. Maybe. So, you know, it's funny from that from that last episode. One of the things that uh, when I when I rewatched the Philippines DVD with Jenny, my wife, uh, one of the things that she pointed out was, "Isn't that weird how yo-yo contests still look exactly the same as they did twenty years ago?" <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and it really and as soon as she said it, I was like, "Oh shit, I cannot unsee this. Like this is rough." But then it made me think of the triple D which is the first yo-yo contest that did not look anything like that. And man, that was very nearly a train wreck. That was a good time. So that's something to talk about. Yeah, that is for sure something to talk about. So the Triple D, I, I, I can't even pinpoint the exact year. And again, this is also, this is pre like ubiquitous internet, Instagram, social media of everything. So it's hard to even look back, but it was either 2002 or 2003. That's true. So it was 2002, 2003. It was after, after yo-yoing had had its boom and then the boom had died and cycled out. We was long enough that we had established the DXL the crew and Southern California, and we had a network of friends and stuff getting together, but yet it was before, it was long before, it was a couple years before um, working at, uh, when I'd worked at Kung Fu Records, which was when we did Viking tour and um, Philippines tour. So you would have been at Duncan in Ohio by this point. Right. So I was working at Duncan. I was living in Ohio and working in the office. And to give you like some larger context for where the industry was, like, again, it was post yo-yo boom, but it was an ugly time post yo-yo boom. Because what was yeah. happening now is that from a mass market standpoint, so all the companies that were like mass market distributed, right? So it was like Duncan, Omega, Playmax, blah, blah, blah. So I think Playmax might have even have gone was close to going under or had gone under at this point. Um, but all these companies, like all of the the big mass market retailers had a glut of inventory that they yeah. were trying to mark down and blow out and they couldn't get rid of. So yeah. they were like fill. I mean, every shelf in America had discounted yo-yos on it. So all of the, the large yo-yo companies were screwed. Yeah. So the, the, trick was like how do you constantly promote despite the fact that you have no money for R&D you have no promotional budget your sales are flatlined but you still need to move units you still need cash flow so like the big challenge that I was dealing with at Duncan is like I was constantly trying to figure out how to promote yo-yoing but do it in a way that wasn't going to cost us any money but by that point we had really started to establish the clubs in the local gangs were really kind of uh you know supporting and you know like propping everything up and so that really became where this came from was the southern california the dxl crew had really you know come into its own which we should we should just explain what that is 
Yeah. So DXL stands for double XL. And it was, uh, it, it was almost a joke born out of the fact that when Brian, uh, Brian Cabildo, who started DXL glass, eye, uh, glass eye. So he was putting together like a, a Southern California yo-yo club. And he was, he was literally asking people like for their sizes for t-shirts so he could order them. And everybody was saying double XL, double XL, double XL, because it was the late nineties, early two thousands. And everybody wore their shit like enormously baggy. And so out of that, he literally renamed the club, which I think at the time was called something dumb, like SoCal Yo-Yo Club or something. He renamed it. He renamed it DXL Crew. It Because it started as a shop club for this totally shady, like this totally shady video store that was just following it was just following the uh, trends at the time. Oh my God, I totally fucking forgot about that. It was like a VHS video rental shop. And the, the, the couple that owned it, totally shady, following trends. So at this point, again, this was where yo-yoing had become big. So everyone stocked yo-yos and oh my stopped God. stocking what, yo-yos. What were their names? What I remember they them. changed them. To avoid creditors at some point. <laughs> yes, I remember. No, I mean, these folks were amazing. Like, they were the sketchiest, sketchiest motherfuckers. Nice, nice, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, they were really sweet, but they were also just like an absolute nightmare. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, and I, when I say nightmare, I mean, like, breaking down on the way to yo yo contests, like, missing events because, like, somebody got arrested. Like, yeah. I mean, that level, like the kind of shit you would expect more from a guy who grew up which in Jacksonville, is, Florida. Which is really hilarious because Glass Eye, who is the like kind of the backbone of that, is like one of the nicest, straight shootingest, like, like trustworthy guys I know. <laughs> Dude, Glass Eye, Glass Eye plays guitar in his fucking church choir. Like Glass Eye is he like, is so involved is, in his church. It's comical that he was involved. That like he was involved with these people. So as they were like, I think they might have genuinely like their their shop had closed. They were like, if you told me they were on the lamb at that point, I would have believed it. But yeah. I, but Glass Eye had this gang of kids like that were they were just you know great awesome into it super innovative you know when you list off the names this really was like the dogtown z boys of yo-yoing as far as like a lot of innovation we're talking about like yeah it was felix avalana jason lee james james lack jason gallagher himself who was just a personality although like yeah you know um trick wise and of course glass eye himself you know like so much came out of that ant-man and his brother anthony ma yeah spencer would have been spencer was definitely part of that spencer spencer was northern cal but he came down like he had a like he was northern cal but somehow was very like he had a he had a time in Southern Cal, but he was very involved in that. So yeah, he was actually kind of on the the Spindox edge though, because they were they were the complement. They were the NorCal right. gang. Yeah, Spin Spindox was like uh, was like Spencer and uh, Gary Longoria, Jeff Longoria, Paul Escalar, yeah, Nathan Chrissy, Nathan Chrissy. Um, 
Yeah. So it, like between man, between, between spin docs and DXL, that's literally like 80% of all fucking yo-yo development for like a solid five year period. That's absolutely the case. So we, so we were doing by this point, like I said, all the events were on the shoulders of like the clubs and this, you know, like obviously we would always reach out to the two yo-yo companies left, three yo-yo companies left, but still, as you point out, there just wasn't the promotions that there was a few years earlier. Right. There was, and there was no budget. There was just like no budget. Like you would get, um, if you could get a few hundred bucks out of them, that was kind of amazing, but mostly like well, you, you got prizes prize. out of them. You were happy to have yeah. it. You were happy. Yeah. You were happy to just get yo-yos to give away as prizes. And so I was working at Duncan and I was constantly like, I was engaged in like a full blown culture war at that point. Um, and this is something that like, I don't know, I don't know how to talk about this larger. Maybe, maybe this is a full separate episode, but like I was actively like, what, like I had come up with like the whole CD-ROM idea for Duncan and, you know, like I'd gotten yeah, like no yeah. idea records on board and, yeah. you know, like, you know, all of our promotional videos, it was all punk rock bands. I was, I had put together like the Duncan crew and, you know, and filled it with like as many punk rock kids as possible. Like I was actively doing everything I could to bring as much punk rock culture into yo-yoing as I could in order to make yo-yoing cooler. And don't forget by this point, we, this was post warp tour. So we had spent a summer on the warp tour making, you know, like, and took friends off of that, you know, like Timmy Chunks became a great friend. So we had, we had like all these friends in punk rock bands, both from growing up and from people that we had met on warp tour. Let's, let's also throw in, I mean, we got, we got to, uh, we got, we got to say the name of the, the, the yo-yo princess, you know, that it, that it was a, a linchpin in this whole thing. It was Jen Niles. Jen Niles. Jen Niles was like, she was a huge part of the Golden Apple yo-yo community. Because she was gold, like this, that summer. She worked at at Golden Apple. She worked at Golden Apple. And the summer that, the summer of 99, when things were kind of booming, Bill had a deal with the LA County library system to do demos at LA County library. So she was doing local demos like she was just kind of the regional dem share. So she was, so she was doing these demonstrations. Bill can't overstate the, like the amount of support that he held up the Southern California yo-yo scene that became so influential. And right. again, she was, she was, you could argue right-hand man on that, like on a lot of that stuff. So you had, so you had DXL crew, which was meeting like a Huntington beach area. Or I don't know where they were meeting officially. Like I was, I was, I was, part of DXL crew when they were in Hollywood. But, and I think that they would, because there was the peer group, but I don't know if, I think that was, you know, Yoshi's thing, which was separate. I think it was largely, so I think DXL was largely like Huntington beach area. And then golden apple comics was like right there on Melrose. So you had, you had two and golden apple comics got uh, a handful of the older kids, but it was mostly like the younger crowd. So, but you had two really strong, solid, like, groups like two really strong clubs in that immediate area um one a little older one that skewed a little younger um both of them run by like dedicated people with a lot of connections in the area well what would happen is that bill had the real estate and he could put together an event so he would get pros in he would get events he would make contests and then the dxl crew would come up and up to us 
Right. You know, but the DXL crew was like the older players who were like really setting the tone for like trick creation. Like that was like, that was a hotbed of creativity. So, so, so you had, there was a huge base there. Like there was a huge base to build on. And when I was working for Duncan, like it was not uncommon for me to come out to Los Angeles and spend a few days like doing demos or stuff, do like product releases, whatever video we were working on at the time. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Anytime we were shooting video for anything, I would go to LA and then it would just be like, you know, like a a week or two week, like party. That's where we shot almost all the footage for the CD ROMs. Um, but yeah, all of them you know. came after I left those. And so yeah. the missing D in this was Destroy All Monthly. Right. Now, Destroy All was to this day one of my most admired, fame, like brilliant concepts for a magazine, which is a music magazine, except they would run reviews and band interviews of bands before they came to town. Right. So every, it was essentially like a music preview magazine for what was going to be happening the next month in LA. Yeah. So you could, you could pick up this magazine and you could get like album reviews for bands that were on tour that were heading to LA. You could get a ton of band interviews for bands that were on tour and heading to LA. And you, you know, it would come out like end of the month, beginning of the month. And then that was, that was kind of your guide to all the shows that were going to be happening in greater Los Angeles that month. Now, this was also, you know, just for context, this seems almost like strange now, but this is be- functionally before the internet. This is before websites were a thing. So you would write and then pass this, they would print this magazine out and pass it around. It was connected. They had, um, I believe, Rafe and Charlie's project. Yeah. Rafe. Yeah. Rafe and Charlie started it. Rafe from uh, what? Blue Collar Special. That was his band. I think that was his band. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had a record shop. And we're doing this out of the back of the record shop. Jen was, I don't know exactly what Jen's role. She was heavily involved. I don't know if she was, I don't think she was editor, but she was, you know, functionally yeah, ran the magazine. I don't know if she was editing. I think she was doing like ad sales and stuff. I mean, she yeah. was definitely like, she was, she was head you hustler. Know, yeah, she was like, she was part of the masthead, right? Like she yeah. was part of the team that was making the magazine happen every month. Yeah. She, um, she and was I was writing for it. I was too. I did. Oh my gosh, I should find these. There was a monthly cartoon of a yo-yo trick in that magazine. I remember that. That was like Super Spy Jim because at this point, again, we were we come off of we come off of Warp Tour, so we had and Jen was the force of nature that is Jen Niles. Yo-yos were around that scene when she was recruiting people and to um catch you to the ma- magazine, excuse me. She said, Hey, you wanna you wanna do something? I was like, Yeah, sure. I'll I'll do a yo-yo trick each month. But I did it as a cartoon, and my challenge was to do it as a single panel cubist cartoon. So the idea is that you would see the entire trick in one fluid motion drawing of this you know, like mock spy doing something, like somehow trying to break into a, a safe or def- def- diffuse a bomb or something like that with a yo-yo trick all in one panel. It was surreal. Like I can't believe somebody not on drugs was making that cartoon each month. I mean, yeah, it was some pretty pretentious dumbassery, but we loved it. So pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, 
so I was writing record reviews badly and I was occasionally interviewing bands less badly, but still not great. Um, so I was involved in the magazine. You were involved in the magazine. I was working at Duncan. And again, I was constantly looking for ways to involve punk rock into yo-yoing more. And I don't even remember like when the idea came about, but at some point, and I, I, I don't know if this was you and I having this conversation or me and Jen Niles having this conversation, because honestly, either is equally likely. But at some point, we were like, what if we threw a punk rock yo-yo contest? I feel like that's always something that we talked about. We should do this. We should do that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we've had a thousand of those conversations. Thousands of those conversations. And some point it was, we're really going to do this. And I think what happened was that really pushed it over the edge was that Jen brought it to Charlie Ackerman at Destroy All. Oh yeah. Jen, like Jen's the reason it happened because it, Oh, totally. It, Jen is the reason that it went from like us being like, you know what we should do to her being like, Oh yeah, I talked to Charlie and he's like totally down for it. And he's got this venue in silver. Like what's a date. And we're like, Oh fuck. Now we, what shit? Wait, huh? The funniest thing though, is I remember the first meeting being, we, we, we were at destroy all monthly. We were at the destroy all records. We we're at the record shop. We're having a meeting about this. Jen and I were there to represent the, you know, represent the yo-yo stuff. And Charlie, who again, like at this point, Charlie, he was like personal assistant for a while to like Brett Gerwitz at Epitaph. I mean, like we're talking about a guy like when he was very young, was really deep in punk rock at its heyday. Like it's 90s. Like we're talking when Epitaph had Rancid and The Offspring. He was wise beyond his years, used to this stuff. Jen had um, worked at, she was working at with Golden Voice. Her husband, Eric, at the time was working with Golden Voice, major concert promoter out here. She had, she had a venue with him like when they were younger. So they were very steeped in rock and roll. We're at this meeting and I remember Charlie in all business being like, okay, so we got to figure out how many people we can expect. We can get the Echo, which is a great little music venue in LA and get this. And like, so how many people you think we're, yeah, like, I know how many people the, the rock and roll side can bring. How many people do you think the yo-yo side can bring? And Jen kind of looks at me, looks at me like, eh, maybe 20. <laughs> He's expecting like hundreds and, you know, kind of thing. We're like, good. 20 and we were like feeling good about it like jen was like oh easily 20 and i immediately was just like i feel like such an asshole right now <laughs> <laughs> oh man Charles i'm glad like, i wasn't in that meeting <laughs> oh so right there like oh, i know we're in for something we're in for a thing here <laughs> i mean you know spoiler alert we got more than 20 so we had so they brought some bands so we had with- three bands playing and one of the bands was Timmy Chunks's band. Nice. I forgot about that. Yeah. I think it was Timmy Goes Boom. Sounds about right. Now, let's give a moment. We, Timmy Chunks, we met him on the Warp Tour. Timmy Chunks is a character. Everybody knew Timmy Chunks. Like He was, at that summer, happened to be the roadie for the Bouncing Souls. He was buddies with them and was just kind of like their driver, unpacker, just like he was their guy. 
He was the he was basically he was like a tour and stage manager for the Bouncing Souls that summer. Um, and when we say he was buddies with them, like the record label they own is named after him. Chunks of Records is named after Timmy. You know, background on Timmy Chunks. So in like the late like the eighties New York hardcore scene, like when New York hardcore literally came into existence, um, there was a band called Token Entry. That was like, you know, the darlings of like the New York hardcore scene. Timmy was the singer for that band. So like when you talk to like any New York hardcore guys who know anything about the history of that scene, if you say Timmy Chunks, everybody knows who the fuck you're talking about. And the thing that killed me was, again, I met Timmy in the context of just he was a he was our buddy. He showed up and just kind of started. He like adopted us on the work tour. He did. When when I learned later that he was the singer for Token Entry, I went, what, what, hold on. And I just had this moment where I remember in middle school having written Token Entry like band logo on their on their grip tape of their skateboard, you know, yeah. and being like, wait, that token, like that token entry, you know, it just, I would just like this, like, and now like, what, what a weird circle. So, okay. So we had three bands playing. So Timmy Chunk's band, Timmy goes, I think it was Timmy goes boom. He's, he's had a few like various bands. Um, I think it was Timmy goes boom played and there were two other bands. And again, like there's no 400 blows was one of them. Oh, maybe. I mean, that's the thing. There's like, I have no surviving materials from this somewhere in a bin. I have a t-shirt from the contest but that's it that's literally all the material i have from this so i i mean maybe maybe if i dug out an old hard drive i could find some stuff but like i haven't i've looked and i haven't been able to find anything we had an mc lined up three bands and then a yo-yo contest we need to talk about the mc though melly douchebag (laughs) so our mc was a local punk rock comedian named melly douchebag he got that name because he was a bouncer at the Troubadour. Mel's a big guy. Yeah. Mel, like, uh, like he's a big guy with a heart even bigger. One of the nicest motherfuckers you'll, you would ever be. Funny, yeah. great guy. And But he was a bouncer for a while. And at some point, he was throwing somebody out. And they were just, and they were like, just called it, just yelled like, fucking douchebag. And so... All of his punk rock friends from that point or just were like Melly douchebag. So, so we started, so the cast of characters here is we've got, we've got you, me, Jen Niles, right? Kind of, of, of master. Bring in the yo-yo part. Yeah. Bring in the yo-yo part. And then we've got Charlie and Rafe kind of handling the wrangling, the venue and the music part. We've got, uh, we've got an MC named Melly douchebag. We've got three punk rock bands playing. So then the next thing that we did is we decided that we weren't going to judge this like a regular yo-yo contest. And in fact, of course, what we decided is we weren't really going to judge it at all. It was going to be 100% fucking randomly subjective at the time. We were literally just going to have judges holding up numbers between 1 and 10 based yeah. off of zero fucking criteria whatsoever. Zero. I'm surprised then- that we didn't get a gong show gong. I mean, it, it had been talked about a little bit, but I think we decided to just like keep shit simple. But so one of the things that I wanted to do is uh, I wanted to make sure that we had somebody from the punk rock side of things to be a judge. And I don't know who the fuck set this up. I don't know who made this happen, but somehow Dwayne Peters from the U.S. Bombs 
was our celebrity guest punk rock judge. Nice. And our yeah. backup judge was Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks and off. <laughs> I didn't know that he was the backup judge. He was the backup judge. And he was he, just there. He was yeah, just he there hanging there. out. He was hanging yeah. out. <laughs> he was there hanging out at the contest. He's like, hey, do you guys need me? And I'm like, no, Dwayne showed up. Because that's the thing is nobody was sure if Dwayne was actually going to show up or not. <laughs> Because Dwayne famously will just sort of disappear for a few days at a time, yeah, you know, and then he'll show back up and everybody's like, where the fuck you been? He's like, I don't know. I was off. It wasn't the last time, like, like at the risk of flashing forward too far, one of the BLCs I put on, I got um, Jeff Penalty, who was the then singer for the Dead Kennedys to be our, uh, to be one of our judges. Nice. I'm glad you carried that forward. That's solid. I like yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, so we had, it was like, the judges were like Jason Tracy, Dwayne Peters, and I don't even, I don't even remember who the third person was. I don't know. But like, we gave them, the criteria we gave them was, if you think it's cool, give them a number between one and 10. That was it. And then we literally just averaged it. Now, at that point, Jason Tracy was a pro. Like he was, like he genuinely was one of the Southern California gang, but he was a little further north. So we didn't like, so it was always like a drive for him to come down. So he was definitely part of the golden apple crew, but he definitely, but he wasn't as like deep into the DXL side of it. He was, he was working for BC yo-yos at the time. So he was a pro throwing exclusively wooden yo-yos. Exactly. So like him and Chuck short were like their two main demonstrators. So you've got like in the middle of the yo-yo boom with like this whole like equipment and trick Renaissance. You had these two guys who are like, ah, fuck you. We're just throwing nothing but wood. And it was fantastic. I love oh, yeah. it. No, Jason Tracy was, he comes up, he comes, he comes back up in later stories. So yeah. that he was so one we, of the judge. He was the yeah. yo-yo judge. He was, yeah, he was the yo-yo judge. And I don't remember who the third person was. And I kind of feel terrible yeah. about that. I know. But I remember that, I remember that we were in this venue and it, this was a, a bar with a stage venue, but we were there in the afternoon. There's like not enough people to fill this place up. The, Bands were would be setting up on the stage, so the yo-yo players, as I remember, were like on the floor in right. front so, of the yeah, stage because all the all the all the band gear was on the stage, so we couldn't put the yo-yo players on the stage because there literally wasn't physically enough room for them. The judges were just in chairs in front of them. So we had, uh, and so what we did is we had like we had like three divisions, and then a band would play between every division. Which gave us time to like, you know, tabulate scores and also for the judges to like, you know, knock back get some bourbon. Go get yeah. another beer and go outside for a cigarette. So the thing is, is the venue was serving alcohol the entire time. Yeah. And so you just had to, you know, yeah. you had to like show your ID and get a wristband or whatever. But like the amazing thing about this contest is the parents started drinking at noon. Yeah. And that was the thing is that like, you know, we all like this, this is a theme which comes up a lot in my, my yo-yo career was that yo-yoing was largely high school boys. And it came from being originally eight to 12 year olds. And then, but by the time we were doing the trick, especially post boom, everybody was high school plus. Yeah, the age slowly went up there to it till it got to the point where like, you know, the average age of a, a competitive yo-yo player was like 15, 16. You know, so we would start to do content for lack of a better word. We'd start to do these shows and start to have fun, like the Wheel of Penalty, which should be another episode at some point. 
at the worlds and stuff like that. These were, you know, we were programming for older kids, but because somebody goes yo-yo contest, oh, it's a kid thing. So, right. so this was a yo-yo contest using air quotes at, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon. So everyone showed up at a bar. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got like this weird mixture of like eight and 10 year olds with their parents, like looking around and going, what the fuck are we doing here? But then you've got the older high school kids whose parents are like in their forties who are like, this is so much fucking better than the last yo-yo contest we went to. And they just started <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Like they're, they're like, they're, you know, there was like a taco truck or something like outside and people would just go outside, yeah. get a couple of tacos, go inside, knock back a few beers. Like people everybody started getting rowdy. Yeah. And so by that point, Mel did his, as the MC and a stand-up comedian in his own right, did his intro stand-up bit. Right. Cause he decided he wasn't just going to announce shit. Like he was going to do like full bits. Yeah. And, and so full stand-up material. So what was supposed to, like, you know, what was originally could have been like a simple yo-yo contest turned into like Melly douchebag holding court with vaguely dirty jokes to a host <laughs> of drunk parents who are enjoying themselves at a yo-yo contest for the first time ever. And then their kids who are a mixture of horrified and confused and enjoying the hell out of this. And then every so often the yo-yo contest would end and a fucking band would play. And so, you know, and the band would play. And when the band would play, all the punk rock kids who showed up for the show would go nuts. So these yo-yo kids are getting like kicked and pummeled and knocked out of the way. And they're like, oh, shit. They do. And then, you know, the band would finish up. The punk kids would all move back to the side. The yo-yo players would all move back in so they could get a front row shot at the you know, at watching the freestyles. I don't know if his opening bit or his closing bit, but the one, like his one comedy bit that he was working towards, he was going to do a, he did a stunt where he's going to break a bottle over his head. Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> now, the joke was, this is Hollywood. It's a breakaway bottle. It's supposed to be sugar glass. Right. It doesn't break. <laughs> so... He's watching these things. He's talking about this skill toy stuff that the kids are doing amazing. And he wants to get in on it. So he's going to do his fun thing that he could do. And attempts to break a bottle, fails to break this bottle over his head the first try. Oh Second God. try breaks it over, breaks a bottle over his head in a medium convincing way. You know, like yeah. it, was, it was bad enough. Most of us were laughing our asses off at the, at the, at the train wreck that was Mel who again is doing this for last, failing to break a bottle over his head. Meanwhile, I had, so I'm thinking this is hilarious. And I look over and I see a couple of the kids, the younger kids, just like pale face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of these kids were a little too young to get what was happening there. And I think we may have scarred them, but then other kids like, you know, Patrick Mitchell at the time was fairly young. And I remember him coming up to me after the contest and being like, this is the best thing ever, you know? And like we had, so like we talked to, remember Christina, Christina White? Um, so our friend Christina worked at Epitaph at the time and she hooked us up with prizes. So yeah. every single person who competed or every person who won got this amazing prize bag. It had like a handful of yo-yos. Like, yeah, there's a couple of things from Duncan. Yeah, there's a couple of things from Omega. And then there was like 20 punk rock CDs. Yeah. 
like uh, so man. every every you know first second third in like the two or three divisions that we had like left with just like an amazing library of punk rock releases from epitaph um destroy all threw in some cds like yeah. i mean everybody everybody who won you know everybody who placed walked out of there with probably like 600 bucks worth of records because again not a lot of people showed <laughs> right. right it was it was you know for is it was such a insider thing that yeah. like all the players showed but it wasn't like a mall contest where you had a whole bunch of walk walk you know walking traffic but like we did have a pretty sizable amount of just like random local punk rock kids that yeah. showed up just to see the bands yeah and like some of them kind of, you know, like you'd see yeah. them, you know, buy like, I think there was like one vendor table. It's like there was one table where you could buy yo-yos. And, uh, and I remember seeing, you know, like random kids with like leather jackets with a thousand spikes on them walking around trying to do like walk the dog and just being like, this is the best fucking thing ever. This is fantastic. <laughs> but I mean, we pulled it off, you know, yeah. in a time when like when yo-yoing was kind of publicly dead, you know, the industry was like completely down. We managed to pull together like, you know, two different yo-yo clubs in Southern California. We pulled a bunch of kids from Northern California, you know, and we got like a major punk rock record label and a local magazine to like pull together and fucking sponsor a yo-yo contest in Silver Lake. It was so nice because we were coming out of the promotion land and the idea that you had the feeling that you had to have a company you had to have a mall you had to do this and it was very it was very squeaky clean and like you know we had done like you and i and a, a handful of other people had done our best to kind of dirty it up a little right so yeah it wasn't just that we were dirtying it up it was that we were doing it ourselves i don't know if mantra but it's definitely like a bell i've rung plenty of times in my yo-yo career dealing with these with kids that say Oh, I would love to do this, but I don't have X. I don't have Y. I couldn't put on a yo-yo contest. You know what you need to put on a yo-yo contest? Five friends and a park. You know, you just just put it on yourself. There, like, there's no. Per you don't need permission. And that was really the fun thing is that there was, it was the yo-yo contest where we didn't ask for permission. It was very nearly like the, you know, fucking punk rock house show of yo-yo contests, you know, in a lot of ways. I've always been really surprised that like the DIY mentality is so different in yo-yos than it is in punk rock. In that, you know, it's still very present in yo-yos, you know, but it's present in a way that people still like, they're willing to do things themselves, but they still think that, you know, like, yeah, we can do it ourselves, but we can only do it this way. Yeah. You know? So it's like, you know, people will start their own yo-yo con company. You're like, Oh, cool. What does that mean? Oh, well that means that I'm going to hire someone to do this CAD work for me. And then I'm going to send it off to the same three factories that everybody uses. And then I'm going to release it in the same white, and or brown box that everybody uses and I'm going to sell them through the same stores and I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like they still, yeah, yeah. Like there's DIY mentality where everybody feels like they can do it, but then they do it exactly the same that everybody else has done it before. Yeah. Whereas in, in punk rock, like, you know, it, especially like, you know, late nineties, um, mid to late nineties punk rock scene, like it was one of those things where like everybody was doing shit, like any way that they could, any way they wanted, yeah. you know? Like you had, I mean, there's always like some, you know, like recurring themes, right? There's still, you know, you, I'm going to make a yeah. zine, 
going to have a band. Or we're, we're going to, it's going to be two guitars and, you know, bass, drums, blah, blah, you know. And I'm like, angry. Right. But, you know, but there's still like wild amounts of divergence within that. It's like how everybody approaches it. Whereas the DIY scene in yo like there's not that much. There has not traditionally been that much variety to it. So this like at the time, even though for us coming from like the punk rock scene, like this was still pretty tame to be super honest. Oh, yeah, it Um, was. It was very, very tame for us as punks, but for yo-yo players, like this is a revolutionary thing. Like this was like a watershed moment in the history of yo-yoing. I mean, every once in a while, I'll bump into somebody who was there and they still, they're like, dude, triple D, man. Yeah. Well, I think that was the point where the pendulum swung furthest away from the THP refined promotions that were Yomega 1998, that point where the mass market had started doing it the right way for kids to, and like companies were involved, there was money involved. And then when that died, it died and it went away. And so I think that Triple D was the point where it swung back to us really doing it ourselves. After Triple D, you started to get more yo-yo jams you started to get the regionals like they broke the nationals into regionals things like this so yeah that was really a a a moment so like looking back at this right like i mean this is probably like the first time that i've really talked about triple d contests with anybody in a really long time yeah but like looking back on it and realizing that, you know, at the time, like we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We didn't know anything about running a contest. We didn't know anything about running an event, period. You know, we really didn't know what we were doing. We just kind of stumbled into it. And like most punk rock endeavors, it turned out OK. Yeah. You know, it was it was good for its time. It was it was honestly it was like a lot of things that you and I have done in the history of yo-yoing. Like we were just the first ones to show up and do it. We yeah. were by no means the best, but no, no one beat us to it. Exactly. But like looking back on it, like, I mean, considering how much more you and I know now about how to run a business, how to run an event, how to coordinate, how to promote all this stuff. I mean, I guess the question is, is like, why the fuck haven't we done this again? The expectations, expectations and responsibilities. You know, like I think a lot of people feel that there's a certain amount of like, well, this is what the kids expect. So we've got to give them the contest that they expect. Right. I think that that's where a lot of it comes from is, well, well, I mean, I practiced so hard to be, to do my freestyle. Why would you, how, like, how dare you change the format that I expect and throw away all the effort that I put into making my freestyle. So we go, well, we've got to accommodate the kid, accommodate all the kids who put so much effort into their freestyle and do three minute fucking freestyles scored with these clickers this way. Well, I mean, here's the thing, though, is that like we have but we've built out enough infrastructure where there's a ton of that. Like there is there is yeah. no shortage. I mean, you know, obviously COVID like kind of fucking wrecked us on that. But like contests are coming back now. And like, you know, once we kind of get back into like the full sort of roster, like there's no shortage of places for kids who are, you know, have put their heart and soul into perfecting this two minute or three minute routine, whatever. Like there's no shortage of places for them to show that off and get that exact kind of technical recognition. Um, but there's no, there's nothing else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and with BLC, like, I feel like you were always kind of riding that line. Like you were trying yeah. to sort of be both. 
You know what yeah. I mean? And the the thing about Triple D, and this is the only time that we've ever done this, is that we completely threw it out the window and we didn't yeah. give a shit. Well, at that point, there was not there 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 were fewer expectations, and what few expectations there were were taken care of. Bill yeah. Bill Leibowitz was writing the Southwest. I, like I said, I don't think that I don't know if the regionals had become a thing yet at that point. I mean, wasn't but, it still like the like the American Yo-Yo Association that was like the governing body at the time? Like this is before like the National Yo-Yo League became a thing. Bob and Thad were putting on Nats. Just Nats was Chico. Nobody questioned it. So, okay. So for context, like the American Yo-Yo Association is like a now defunct organization, like doesn't even exist anymore. It was basically absorbed into the National Yo-Yo League and then like, you know, gobbled up and disbanded essentially. Um, So like at the time, Yo-Yo contests were kind of, they were kind of standardized. The rules were standardized for sure. Um, And you had, you did have a series of contests. You had like regional contests that, that, seeded into the national yo-yo contest and then you had national yo-yo contests all around the world that seeded into the world yo-yo contest but they weren't that standardized they weren't as standardized as they needed to be for that kind of like a tiered competition oh, that, thing. like that'll 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 crack open a whole thing because that was a philosophical <laughs> tension with me well, that i i firmly yeah. believe that they should not be standardized and i was i was thwarted by the powers that be, including the one that I'm talking to now, yeah. on standardization must occur. And it didn't happen till later. Yeah, no, it didn't happen till later. But I mean, the, the reality is that like, if you're going to have a tiered competition thing where like all these contests feed in to the ones above them, then that needs to be standardized. But what we didn't do, and this is I as much my, I just hang on, hang on. But what we didn't do, and this is as much my fault as anyone else's, is that we didn't build alternatives into that system at the same time. So what we did is we we figured we put so much energy into figuring out how to standardize as much as possible that we forgot to counterbalance ourselves and 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 give players an outlet that had nothing to do with that system that didn't feed into anything and, you know, and give ourselves room for more things like triple D, which, I mean, it doesn't, you didn't, when did you win a fucking bag of CDs and a drink ticket for your mom? Like, I mean, that was basically, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody came out of that with anything other than like, here you go, kid. Here's like four pounds of punk rock and your parents are lit. Have a nice day. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You know, and that's the that's the thing that we've lost in yo-yoing, right? Is that like we finally have built out like a really, I mean, a fairly elegant standardized system for how to quantify and judge competitive yo-yoing in a way that competitive yo-yoers are happy with. That's great. Now we need to go back and and think about what we lost in that. And we need to build, we need to build alternatives where people can just show up and get rowdy and ridiculous and have a great time, you know, and kind of build out like that other person, those other personality traits of yo-yoing that are not related to like the actual modern competitive yo-yoing scene. Oh, what the future may hold. So what's the, I mean, destroy all is gone. It did not last. It was not meant for this world for long. But uh, Duncan and DXL do still exist. It's true. It's true. So, so if we're gonna, if if you and I decided, if the if the old farts 
one of whom currently runs the World Yo-Yo Contest. If if the two of us decided that we were going to bring back the triple D, what would the third D be? Should I should I call up Bobby? It could be the hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, but I mean, realistically, like, I mean, it would be great to do this again. It would even be great for this to be like a yearly thing where like once a year, doesn't even have to be at the same time, but just once a year, you and I are like, all right, we're doing it again. And you get a few bands to play and there's no scoring system to speak of. And it's just like a fucking free for all. I love it. You know, we just, we, we find a venue that'll let us have like, you know, that's like, yeah, we're not doing anything on a Saturday afternoon, all ages show, find a couple of like, you know, young, like up and coming punk rock bands. I feel like that'd be a good time. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mark McBride. And this has been Yo-Yo Player, a podcast about the modern history of yo-yoing from two guys who helped make it. See you next time. Bye.